Amen. I love that last song. I feel like it ushers us into this heavenly scene uh, that we see in Revelation chapter 4, that we who are in Christ will participate in fully someday. I like that song because I feel like it allows us to uh, enter into that even now. I want to read that whole scene to you from Revelation, uh, starting in chapter 4. This is what God's Word says. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone with sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature was like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and because of Your will they existed and were created. I saw in the right hand of Him who sat on the throne a book, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one, no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb, standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them I heard saying to Him who sits on the throne to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. What, what a scene, right? From the beginning to the end of that, what a scene that takes place in heaven, right? And, and we got to be a little part of that just a second ago, singing those same things, saying those same things, all for the day that we will see it ourselves, right? And we'll practice from now till then, right? So that we'll be ready for that day. 
we'll practice from now to then so that when it's our turn to sing, worthy are you, worthy are you, holy, holy, holy is the lamb that was slain, we'll, be, we'll know that song, right? We will know that song when we get there, and I'm thankful for moments like that when we can sing those, those kind of songs. Do you have your Bibles this morning? Good. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, chapter 3 actually is where you need to go. Last week, we saw in 2 Corinthians a great demonstration of Paul's love, his concern for the church at Corinth. If you remember rightly, he was going to Troas uh, to meet Titus, who was hopefully going to meet him there with some word of what had happened at Corinth. He was looking forward to hearing how the church had progressed, how they had received the harsh words that he had said to them, if they had repented, if they had done discipline. And when he gets to Troas, Titus isn't there. And even though God opens a great wide door for him to preach the gospel and for men and women and boys and girls to be saved, Paul says he didn't have any peace within himself. He didn't have any calmness in his spirit. And so he left Troas. He left that wide open door for ministry to go to Macedonia to find out about what had happened in Corinth. I want you to see from that that Paul cares deeply about the people at Corinth. He is saying the things that he says, not because he dislikes them, or not because he loves them less. He is saying the things he says to them because he loves them so much, and he clearly cares about them. The other thing we talked about is how Paul preaches. Everywhere he goes, he preaches. If he's on his way to Troas to meet his friend Timothy, or Titus, to hear about the church at Corinth, he preaches the gospel while he's there. I told you that for Paul, missions was not an event. Evangelism was not an event on the calendar. It was not something he went to do. It was a lifestyle. It was something that he did all the time. And that's obedience to the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not go here and preach or go there and preach, but it's everywhere you go, preach. Everywhere you go, make disciples. Everywhere you go, share the good news as you are going. And I hope you did that this week. I hope as you went to school and as you went to work and as you went to lunch, you preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked also about how Paul says that his suffering is evidence of his apostleship, that Jesus suffered, Jesus went through tribulation, Jesus faced persecution. Paul says, I'm following my master. I'm simply following my master. The, the trouble that Paul is facing is not, is not in disagreement with his apostleship. It is not in disagreement with his authority. Rather, it affirms his authority. It affirms his apostleship. And he's made that argument for several weeks now. And in the text today, he's going to shift gears from that. And he's going to stop arguing about his apostleship from his perspective. And he's going to start arguing about it from their perspective. He's not going to say anymore, look at my life and look at the evidences in my life of my apostleship. He's going to say, look at your own life, church at Corinth. Look at your own life, Corinthians. You guys are the evidence of my apostleship. You guys are the evidence of my authority. You guys are the letter of approval from the Lord Jesus himself. It is a very interesting thing in the text today. Some really good stuff, and I hope you will see it clearly by God's grace. So check it out, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll get through verse 6 today. God says through Paul, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, 
who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Let's pray together. God, we thank you today for that new covenant, for that Spirit that gives life. We thank you for Jesus who came to die for us. Thank you for Jesus who lived without sin, tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. We thank you that you made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. We thank you that you placed our iniquity upon him and poured out your wrath upon him. Instead of us. God, I thank you for the sacrifice you have made for us and the substitute you gave for us. I thank you not only that Jesus died for us, but that he rose again, victorious over sin, victorious over the grave, victorious over even hell. I thank you for Christ's victory. And I thank you that you give us, give us that victory through him, by your grace. I thank you for the good news of the gospel. I thank you that you can change a life as wretched, miserable, rebellious as mine. I thank you for that power and that grace and that goodness. And I pray that it will be clear today. And that men and women and boys and girls will experience experience it today for the very first time. And that you'll get the glory in it all. In Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So there are kind of two major parts of the text that we'll look at today. Um, The first really leads to the second. It's as if Paul engages the Corinthians in this debate, in this argument about whether or not he's a legitimate apostle. And then as he's making that argument, he uses some language that spurs something in his mind. It's like as he's giving his defense of his apostleship, he says some words that he says later on, oh, i got to go and explain more of that. And then in the second part of the text, he gets into this just delight in the new covenant and how the new covenant is so much better than the old covenant and is the fulfillment of the old covenant where we find true forgiveness and a new life and a new hope and a living Savior. And he just delights in that, and we will also delight in that today. But let's deal with the first part first. Look at verse 1. In verse 1, Paul says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? Most scholars believe that here Paul is dealing with something that has already come up with the Corinthian people. Most scholars think that someone had already come to Corinth and said, Hey, Corinth, what, what do you really know about Paul? What do you really know about him? I mean, he didn't come with any recommendation when he came to town the first time. He didn't come with any letters. No one else has approved his ministry. He's just a guy that showed up and preached the gospel to you. What do you really know about Paul? And Paul, in his other letters, is quick to defend his apostleship, apostleship, never placing it at the authority of someone else. He will say, I didn't receive this apostleship from Peter. I didn't receive it from James. I didn't receive it from the Jerusalem church. I received it from the Lord Jesus himself. Paul is very sensitive about his apostleship, about any challenge to it, and about defending it. But he's also very careful about not commending himself. 
He never says, I claimed this apostleship. I laid hold of this apostleship. I earned this apostleship. No, rather, he always recognizes that it was given to him as a gift, right? If anyone knew that, it was Paul, because he remembered who he was, right? He says if he's the least of the apostles, right? Not even deserving to be an apostle because he persecuted the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet God chose him and changed him and is using him now. And so Paul says, listen, are we commending ourselves to you again? No, 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 we're not. We're not. We're not commending ourselves. Paul says, I'm not commending myself to you. He says, I'm not going to do that. Later on, he's going to say, the Lord Jesus himself will commend me to you. The Lord Jesus himself will recommend and approve me for your ministry here. But he will not commend himself. And then he says this. He says, do we need, as some do, letters of commendation to you or from you? Most preachers, when they would come to town, if they were traveling preachers, would carry with them a whole list of recommendations from well-known pastors in other areas, people that the folks in Corinth might have known. They would have said, oh, Pastor so-and-so says, I'm a great preacher. Oh, Pastor such-and-such says, I should, you should allow me to come and preach here. It's no different than today, right? You guys should see my mail. Every week in the mail, I get tons of flyers about preachers and evangelists and all kinds of folks. And most of the flyer are little blurbs from pastors that I have heard of, at least, saying, oh, such and such, I I recommend his ministry. Great things will happen if he comes to your church. And that's helpful sometimes, right? Helpful sometimes if someone I know says, yeah, this is a great guy. And we do this in all kinds of areas. Paul says, I don't need that. I don't need that, especially at the church at Corinth. If there was any group of people in the world that could vouch for Paul, it's the church of Corinth, right? He came to them, and he preached to them, and he gave 18 months of his life to them. And a church was born, and a church grew, and he wrote to them, and he loved them, and he instructed them, and he guided them along the path. If anyone needs letters about Paul, it's not the church at Corinth, right? But Paul says, do I need letters like some do? I think that's a little bit of a, an undercut at these troublemakers who are coming and saying, Paul needs letters. Paul needs letters. You need to see the letters from Paul. Paul says, you need to see letters for these guys. These guys are the ones who need letters, not me. You know me. You trust me. Ask for the letters for these guys who are coming and causing trouble. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Oh, no, 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 no. Or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? Absolutely not. And then in verse 2, he says this, you are our letter. Paul says, I don't need a physical letter. I don't need a piece of paper that I keep folded up in my wallet when I go to a new church. He says, you guys are the letter. I don't need a physical letter. I've got a spiritual letter. I don't need a physical letter. I've got a figurative letter, a living letter. He says, you are our letter. Written in our hearts, known and read by all men. There's a principle at play there that I think we need to tease out a little bit. He says, you are our letter, written on our hearts, but visible to all men. And that's the way Christianity works, right? It is an invisible thing, right? Your relationship with Jesus, can I see your relationship with Jesus? Can I, can I open up your heart and get a little picture of your relationship, your personal relationship with Jesus? No, that's an invisible thing, right? It's a very personal thing, and it's a very internal thing. And we need to affirm that and approve that. But... It can't just be an internal thing, right? If this internal thing has really happened, it will necessarily have external implications. It will have external demonstrations. Does that make sense to you? And Paul says that. He says, you are the letter written in our hearts, but clearly read by all men. In other words, he says, what has happened between you and Jesus is invisible, but the implications of what has happened between you and Jesus are clearly visible, and everyone that looks at the church at Corinth can see it. My question is, can anyone see your relationship with Jesus? 
Can anyone see the implications of your relationship with Jesus? Or are you one of countless numbers uh, of American Christians who are willing to sit back and say, no, me and Jesus, we're good. I got Jesus and it's between me and him and there's no discernible difference in their life. That's a scary place to be, I will tell you, as you read the New Testament, that's a scary place to be. To claim to have a relationship with Jesus with no evidence of it is a very scary place to be. If all you have in your life is your profession of faith, if that is all you've got, if you are hanging your hat entirely on your profession of faith, that is a scary place to be. If you don't believe me, read 1 John for yourself. If we say we walk in the light and yet walk in the darkness, we're liars. And the truth isn't in us. If all you have is your profession of faith, that's a scary thing. My question is, where's the evidence? Can we see it? Can we see the life change that Jesus has made in you? Can we see the new heart that Jesus has made in you? Paul says that you can't. He says, you are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Listen to this. Being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul is going to chase this image of the spiritual letter pretty far. He's going to use this analogy, and he's going to take it a long way. First of all, he says that the letter itself, the letter that the church at Corinth is, was written by whom? Who wrote the letter? Paul? Did Paul write the letter of recommendation? No, Paul, you can't write a letter of recommendation for yourself, can you? What if you got that? What if I applied for a job and you said, Chris, we're going to need three letters of recommendation? I said, no problem. Came back the next day with three letters that I had written and signed. I recommend Chris Winkleman. He is a great guy. So smart and, man, he's handsome too. (laughs) Signed, Chris Winkleman. What would you do with that? What would you do with that application? You would show all of your friends, right? And it would become a joke. Paul didn't write the letter. Paul did not write his own letter of recommendation. That is the church at Corinth. Who wrote the letter? Jesus wrote the letter, right? Jesus is the one who's authored the letter because these letters of recommendation would always come from a third party that was known by everyone who held some serious authority, right? A third party who was well-known, who wielded a great deal of authority. And there is no one who is better known than Jesus, right? And there is no one who wields more authority than Jesus, right? And so Paul says, Jesus wrote the letter, and he has, right? If the letter is the church, who made the church? Paul? Did Paul come to town and make the church at Corinth? No, Paul came to town and Jesus made the church at Corinth. Jesus created the church at Corinth and he did it through Paul. And so Paul says right off the bat, this letter of recommendation for my ministry that you are was written by Jesus. He says it was pinned. It was pinned maybe by Paul. Maybe he's actually the one that pinned it, but he was just the scribe and not the author, right? You know that this letter, this letter of 2 Corinthians wasn't actually written down by Paul, right? Most of Paul's letters were not actually written down by Paul. He was the one dictating the letters to a scribe, uh, uh, an amanuensis, I think is the word uh, to use to describe that guy, the guy who is writing down what Paul says. And we know this because a lot of times at the end of the letter, Paul takes the pen away from that guy and starts writing in his own handwriting. And he'll say, look with what large letters I'm writing to you, right? He takes the pen away. Paul says that's all he is. That's all he is in this letter-writing process. He is not the author. Jesus is the author. He is simply the scribe who is writing down what Jesus is saying. He's simply the scribe that is writing down what Jesus tells him to write. Does that make sense to you? Again, a very humble, a very humble 
view of himself in his ministry. Next he says, not only is Jesus the author and Paul is the scribe, but the ink that it's being written with, you know, a regular letter would be written with ink. The ink that it's being written with is the Spirit, right? The Spirit of God. Again, it's not something that's written on a page. It's something that's being manifested. It's something that's being happen- happening in the hearts of people. And the Spirit is working in them. And the Spirit is changing them. So what it's being written with is the Spirit. And what it's being written on is not a tablet, not a tablet of stone, not a piece of scroll, not a piece of papyrus, not a codex, not a book. What it's being written on is the hearts of men and women whose lives are being changed. Does this make sense to you? My question is, which would you rather have? Would you rather have a letter on paper written with ink by a human author or a life that is completely different, a church that is brand new and growing? A letter written by Jesus on the hearts of men and women by the Spirit. That's more powerful than any letter of commendation Paul could ever have, right? And that's what he's saying to the church at Corinth. He says, I don't have letters. I don't need letters. You're the letter. You are the proof of God's approval of my apostleship. You are the evidence of Christ's approval of my work. You are the authority. You are the recommendation. That's good news, right? Because what it does is it turns the tables on the church at Corinth. He says, listen, you guys, if you're going to deny my apostleship, if you're going to deny my authority, you have to deny your very existence as a church. You have to deny your life as a church. Because you came to be through my ministry, Paul says. God working through me. To deny me is to deny yourselves. And they are certainly not going to do that. Paul says, do we need as some... Letters of commendation to you or from you, you are our letter, written in human hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for or ministered to by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, and not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. Now all this language that he's using as he talks about this, not written with ink but the Spirit, not written on tablets of stone but on human hearts, all of this is Paul's argument about his apostleship, but it's like it, sh- it's like it shifts his mind to something bigger. It's like it, 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 it makes a move in his mind from this argument about whether or not he's a legitimate apostle to an argument about the gospel. And he does that all the time. You need to see that. Every time Paul is in a debate or a discussion with somebody about his travel itinerary or about his apostleship or about any other thing, he is going to, at some point, steer that conversation to the truth of the gospel, right? Because he's not content just to say, no, I'm really an apostle. He's not content just to say, no, I really did need to travel from here to there first. He is always about the gospel. And we've got to be that way, right? Every conversation we have needs to be steering toward the gospel. Every debate we get into needs to be steering toward the gospel. And you're going to have plenty of opportunities for that in the next few weeks approaching this election, right? Plenty of opportunities to get into debate with somebody about who's right and who's wrong and what should happen, right? Debate all you want. I give you permission. Debate all you want. But be the voice that steers it back to the gospel. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter who's the president doesn't really matter who's on the county board. What matters most is whether or not people have heard about Jesus. What matters most is whether or not people know Jesus as Savior and Lord, right? That's the most important thing at the end of the day. So steer the discussion to that, okay? Have the debate. I'm fine with the debate. Have passion about who you're going to vote for or not vote for, but have more passion for Jesus. Have more concern for the gospel and the kingdom of God. Amen?
That's all I'm going to say about politics. We're done. Okay? <laughs> Amen, someone says. So as Paul is defending his apostleship, he uses some language that triggers his mind to think about something bigger. The something bigger that he's thinking about is actually in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, especially as he uses this image of tablets and hearts, tablets of stone, hearts of flesh. It's going to change his mind and make him think of something else. And that's what he gets into in verse 4. Look what he says in verse 4. This is going to be some good stuff. He says, such confidence we have through Christ toward God. In other words, Paul says, yeah, I I am arguing for my apostleship, and I do have a great deal of of confidence in my apostleship. I do have a great deal of confidence in my authority, but it's not self-confidence. It's God-confidence, right? It's not self-confidence. I'm not self-assured. I'm not self-assertive. I am assertive through Christ. I am assertive through God. And he explains it more in verse 5 when he says, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. Paul says, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Don't don't think that I am swelled up with pride here. I'm not. I'm not. He says, none of this happened by me. None of this happened through me, myself. We're not adequate in ourselves. And it is so important that we understand that. So important that we who serve Christ own that. That we are inadequate in and of ourselves. He says, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Our adequacy is from God. And there's a principle here that we see all throughout the scriptures. And it is this. More often than not, the person that God chooses to lead his people is not the best qualified person. Right? Most often, the person that God chooses to lead his people is the one who maybe is most reluctant to lead. Maybe is the one who is the weakest. You remember when Saul has sinned against God and there needs to be a new king? A new king who is anointed and is going to serve. That king will eventually be David, right? Do you remember when the prophet went to Jesse's house to anoint the new king? You remember when the eldest son of Jesse came strutting out, head and shoulders taller than the rest, handsome and good looking? Do you remember how the prophet responded to that? Oh, this is the one, this is the one, here he is. Here. You remember that? That's exactly what it says in scripture, you can look it up. He's the one, here's the one. Here he comes. He's so handsome. He's so good looking. He's so tall. He must be the king. And you know what God says? Nope. And son after son after son comes in front of the prophet. And God says, nope, nope, nope. Finally, the prophet says, Jesse, do you not have any more? And he says, yeah, I've got this one, but nobody really thinks much about him, right? He's the runt of the litter, and he's out doing some chores. Surely he's not the one. And the prophet says, bring him to him. And as David comes walking up, he's the one, right? He's the one, the runt, the youngest, the weakest. Why does God do that over and over and over again in Scripture? So that he can show his power, right? So that through the weakness of the human vessel, he can show his strength and his power. And Paul says, that's exactly my story. Paul says, that's my story. Over and over again, he says, I'm the weakest. I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the greatest of sinners. I'm the chief of sinners. And yet God chose me to manifest his strength, to manifest his grace, so that it would be clear that surely it's not Paul who's doing this work. Surely it's not David who's doing this work. I can give you a whole list of these, right? We could spend all day talking about these kind of guys. What about Moses? Was Moses the most likely guy to lead God's people out of captivity? No, he didn't even want to, right? He did everything he could to get out of it, and yet God used him, right? How about Gideon? How about Gideon delivering the people from the troublemakers? 
How about Gideon? Where did God find Gideon when he went to get him? Oh, mighty man of valor. Hiding in a wine press, right? Scared to death, trembling in his boots. God does this over and over and over again. And that's what he says here. So that our adequacy is not in ourselves. Our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence is in God. There are two complementary principles that we see at play here and all throughout the Bible when it comes to Christian service. Number one is our total inability in ourselves. Total inability in ourselves. And number two is our total ability in Christ. That's a great place to live. That is a great place to serve. I will tell you from experience, that's a great place to preach from. When I come to this platform saying, I am totally unable to do this in myself. Humility and brokenness and need from me. And I come to this pulpit at the same time with total confidence. Total confidence that God can do it through me in spite of my weakness. Does that make sense to you? Total inability in ourselves and total ability in Christ. That's a good place to be. That's a good place to live. And Paul knew what that was all about. Philippians chapter 4, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not me. Christ working through me. Let me read you a couple of quotes. One is from Oswald Chambers. He says this, God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance upon them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities and resources. I love that. He mostly chooses nobodies, right? Hallelujah for that. Because we're nobodies, right? And when he does choose a somebody, it's because they recognize that it's not their power and they abandon all dependence on their power and completely trust in him. I like it. God likes the nobodies. I like it because I'm a nobody. Listen to what Hudson Taylor says. Listen to what Hudson Taylor says about this. God chose me because I was weak enough. That doesn't make any sense, does it? God chose me because I was weak enough. God does not do his work by large committees. He trains somebody to be quiet enough and little enough and then uses him. Love it, right? Paul says he's got all the confidence in the world, but it's not because of him. It's because of Christ. He's got no confidence in himself and all confidence in Christ. And that's the way it's supposed to work. So the application for today is don't hide behind your weakness. Don't hide behind your weakness as an excuse not to follow Christ in the service he's given to you. Don't hide behind your weakness. It may be the very reason he's chosen you is because of that weakness. It may be the very reason he is calling you to do something is because of the weakness, because he's going to make you strong. He's going to say, yeah, you are weak here, but I'm going to make you strong and show my power through you so that everyone understands it's not your power, but my power alone. Paul says, I'm not adequate in myself. My adequacy comes from him. It's a good place to live. It's a good place to serve. One commentator said this, Our weakness and his strength form an unbeatable combination. I am thankful. I prayed this morning with a group of guys. I'm thankful for reminders of my weaknesses. I'm thankful for reminders of my inability. Thankful for reminders of my inadequacy. And there's no shortage of any of those, by the way. Thankful because they remind me of his strength and remind me of his power and remind me of his grace. And he gets the glory for it. Paul says, 
Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, this is where he makes the turn to the gospel, right? He says, I'm a minister. He has made me a minister of the new covenant, the new covenant, which is better than the old covenant, the new covenant, which is of the spirit, not of the letter. The letter by itself will kill you, but the spirit gives you life. And Paul says, I'm a minister of the new covenant and a minister of the spirit, which brings life. The passage he's talking about is Jeremiah 31, 31. I'll read it to you. It says this, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And listen to this last part. He says, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. It's a new covenant. I'm glad to live there, right? I'm glad to live there because the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, is Paul saying there that the law is bad, that the letter of the law is bad? No, he's simply saying it won't save you. All it does is condemn you. Read the Ten Commandments. How many of them have you kept? Zero. You've kept zero of them. How many of you have broken? Ten. You're you're perfect. Ten for ten. You've broken them all, and so have I. And what results from that is condemnation wrath and anger from God. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This new covenant is about life. Did you catch that, what he said at the end? He said, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. I will put the law in them. I will write it on their hearts and I will forgive them and remember their sin no more. That's a good place to live, right? And that new covenant is brought about by Jesus. Next Sunday morning, next Sunday morning, we're going to have a big table up here, right? Some little cups of of juice and some little pieces of bread, right? And that is a symbol of the new covenant, right? Behold, the new covenant in my blood. Remember this as often as you drink it. Do it in remembrance of me, right? That is a picture of the new covenant. The new covenant that was brought about not by over and over sacrifice of bulls and goats and other animals. No, a new covenant that was brought about by the once for all sacrifice of Christ, right? A new covenant that cleanses us not on the outside, but on the inside. Because those sacrifices that were offered year after year after year simply were a reminder of sin. It simply reminded you that you needed it every year to get you a little bit clean on the outside. You needed an animal to die year after year after year. But Jesus comes and he dies once for all and cleanses us on the inside. It's a beautiful thing, right? And he doesn't have to make that sacrifice over and over and over again because he really cleanses us from sin. One one author says this about the new covenant. He says, in the new covenant, we get a new heart, right? Ezekiel tells us he will remove the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. In the new covenant, we get a new heart. In the new covenant, we get a new relationship, right? We sang about that this morning, right? The whole earth trembled and the veil was torn. 
that veil that once kept man and God separated, right? God dwelt in the holy of holies behind the curtain. Man was not allowed to enter there. Only one man once a year, right? And they tied bells on him and a rope around his foot just in case he died so they could get him out, right? Man and God had separation. Even under the old covenant, there was separation. Even with the sacrifices, there was separation. But when Jesus came, there's a brand new relationship, right? The Holy of Holies is now here, right? In us. He dwells in us, in our hearts. We have a whole new relationship where we approach him not with fear and trembling bells on our shoes and a a rope around our ankle. We approach his throne with boldness and confidence, the author of Hebrews says, right? Because of Jesus. We have not only a new heart, we have a new relationship with God. We have a new relationship with Him, and we have a new knowledge of Him. We know Him as Father. Abba, Father. We crawl up into His lap, we trust Him, and we love Him, and we have an intimate and personal relationship with Him. And then maybe the best thing we have in the New Covenant is true forgiveness. True forgiveness. Profound forgiveness, radical forgiveness. Let me read you the way Paul talks about this another place in Romans chapter 8. Go there if you want to. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says this. Speaking of the new covenant, Paul says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't like that? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Under the old covenant, it was all condemnation, right? The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. question is, are you in Christ Jesus? There is all condemnation for those who are not in Christ Jesus. But there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen to what he says next. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. And how did he do it? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God for it does not subject itself to the law of God for it's not even able to do so and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh but in the spirit if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. All right? The law couldn't do it. The law was never intended to save you. The law was never intended to save anyone. The law was always intended to pave the way for Jesus to set up a system where his great sacrifice makes sense, to set up a system where God's holiness and his righteousness are on display, to set up a system where you see yourself desperate and needy before God, and then comes Jesus to fulfill all the requirement, to make the sacrifice on your behalf, to take your sins and to suffer your wrath and to rise again, right, so that you can have victory. Paul says, I'm a minister of the new covenant, and what a privilege that is. What a privilege it is to preach the gospel of grace and peace to the world, right? I'm so thankful I don't have to stand up here and say, you got to keep more rules, guys. you got to keep more rules and do better. That would be a depressing way to preach. You can't keep the rules. You don't keep the rules. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Fall on Jesus. Cry out to Jesus. And he'll forgive you. He kept the rules for you. Not only will he give you forgiveness, he will give you his righteousness. 
three applications a day and then we're done. Number one, I wrote in my notes, the proof is in the pudding. And I don't exactly remember what that means now. I think it means this. When Paul is arguing about his apostleship, he says, you guys are the evidence. I don't need a letter from somebody at a desk. I don't need a letter from somebody from the outside. He says, you guys are the evidence that God approves. You guys are the evidence that God is working. And I will tell you this, there is no more encouraging thing as your pastor than to see you guys growing, than to see new people coming to the kingdom. There is no more encouraging thing to keep the hand to the plow and pushing forward in ministry than watching God work among you. That is the most encouraging thing. When people say, boy, you're doing good, that pales in comparison to when I actually see God working in your hearts. That is the greatest approval when God works through someone. The proof is in the pudding. Secondly, these two principles of total inability in ourselves and total ability in Christ, we need more God confidence. Not self-confidence, right? You watch the TV, kids need more self-confidence these days. No, they don't. They got more than enough self-confidence. Too much self-confidence, in fact. What we need is more humility and more God confidence. More confidence in Him. More recognition of our inability and more recognition of His power. And then finally, I hope you know about this new covenant. This new covenant where you get a new heart and a new relationship with God and a new knowledge of Him and true forgiveness. True forgiveness is only available in Jesus. And you need it. You need true forgiveness true forgiveness of your sins because we are all sinners and only Christ can change us. Let's stand together and pray. God, we come to you this morning mindful of our weaknesses, mindful of our inabilities, mindful of our inadequacies, and we are thankful for all of them. Because in those weaknesses, you display your strength. God, guard us who know you. Guard us against pride, self-sufficiency, self-centeredness, self-confidence. God, give us true humility. And if we will not voluntarily humble ourselves, we invite you to humiliate us. Give us humility and give us confidence only in you. Help us boast only in you. Help us serve with your strength and with your power. And God, mostly today we're thankful for a new covenant, for a new heart and a new relationship and a new knowledge and true forgiveness that is available in Christ. I pray for men and women and boys and girls who have a heart of stone, who are separated so far from you, who have a bad understanding of who you are and how you love them and are desperate for true forgiveness. God, I pray that you come to them today, that by your Spirit you convict them of their sin, help them feel the weight of their transgressions, Help them see the reality of your judgment against their sin. Help them feel the gravity of what they deserve. God, break them as you broke me 
by your grace, break them. And in their brokenness, God, I pray that you turn their eyes to Jesus, that you show them the great love that you have for them, love that was demonstrated in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God, I pray that they will look through their tears and see Christ who died for them, see Christ who rose victorious over all that would hold them captive. God, I pray that their response would be one of repentance, turning away from sin, and of faith, trusting, radically depending on you, you alone as Savior and hope. God, I pray their lives will be marked by submission to your lordship, obedience to your call, and boldness to tell the world about the only hope there is. God, do this by your grace. Do this for your own glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.